When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. It's an interesting episode today, Jess, because I am not sure that either of us has participated in the sport or either of the sports we will be talking about today. We're actually revisiting something that we both agreed in a prior episode was absolutely terrifying and that Mm -hmm. we never wanted to do. But sometimes you have to conquer your fears by just talking about them with strangers. So we we did more of that today. Yeah, we are going to be joined by the head of competition for the World Surf League, and that is Jessie Miley Dyer. She's going to join us and she's a good sport because she answers all of our questions, the smart ones and the stupid ones. Really, about, I asked a really stupid one. So stay tuned yeah. for that question. It's yeah, embarrassing for sure. stupid. But I did want to know her answer. I didn't think it was that stupid. I thought I really? asked a stupider wow, one. Thank you. I like to be competitive here. I thought the <laughs> one that I asked was stupider. But I mean, what a tease. What a tease for this I interview. know, right? You know what's funny about this, Kate? A couple days ago, I was at a workout class and the instructor said that she thought she knew me from a prior class and she thought that I was a surfer. Mm. And I said, no, I'm, I've am i never surfed in my life, actually. I didn't tell her that we just recorded a surfing episode of Off the Looking Glass, but she said, really? Because you give me a surfer vibe. And I've wow. been trying to figure out what that means for a few days now. Do you think what she meant to say was that you were reminding her of Kate Bosworth? May I was thinking like, maybe I just seem kind of chill. Like that's mm. the old like surfer stereotype. Like, yeah, you know, pretty chill and cool, which I don't think is the case. I also was like, maybe she just thinks that my hair looks like it has yeah. like permanent bleach damage. Like you've been in the, the ocean. Sun. Yeah. Like the Blue Crush character that we are, uh, we discussed on a prior episode. Blue Crush. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out what that means. Little does she know that your background is basically antithetical to everything that surfing is about. Like, you grew up landlocked in a Catholic family. In the suburbs. (laughs) I mean, you know, not that far from Lake Michigan. So we did have a body of water nearby, Kate. Mm. Wait, the term landlocked, doesn't that mean an ocean? Mm, I think it does. But the Great Lakes really are vast and underrated bodies of water. They are massive. So shout out to the Great Lakes. Yeah, like the Great Lakes, you can't even see across to the other side. Exactly. People are shocked when they see how big Lake Michigan is for the first time. So Okay, dumb question. There's never a wave on a lake unless you make them yourself. Lake Michigan has waves. I don't think you could surf them, but they it does get really choppy, especially in the winter when there's strong winds. So there you go. Wow. We are just a beacon of just surfing information for folks here. I mean, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, do lakes have waves? Maybe the second stupidest question <laughs> of all the questions on today's podcast. It might not even be in the top five. <laughs> we'll see. Fair enough. Well, we'll find out if you listen to the episode and think that 
you have a contender for a stupidest question, please tweet it at us and let us know what you thought it was. Yeah, or you can um, hit us up on Instagram. We have a new IG handle, which is OTLGpod. So just Hell the yeah. acronym for Off the Looking Glass. Give us pod. a follow. Let us yes. know what you thought was stupid. Give us a follow. Let us know our stupidity. Also, tell us nice things also. Yeah. For every stupid thing, tell us a nice thing. How's that? Please balance it out, which is what you need on a surfboard as well. And you, <laughs> I don't know if you need it for this other sport that we're going to talk about today. You know what? Let's just tease that. We are okay. on the backside of this interview with Jesse going to talk about another quote unquote sport. We'll debate it whether it remotely deserves that distinction, Jess. But I'm excited for this conversation. Me too. Stay tuned for that. Our guest today is from Australia. She became a pro surfer in 2006. In that same year, she finished number four on the Association of Surfing Professionals Tour. She also won the Billabong Pro Maui. She was an Olympic torchbearer and in 2021 became the head of competition for the World Surfing League. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, Jessie Miley Dyer. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Hi, Jessie. Yeah, good. Sorry, I was just sculling coffee. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You've got the five minute grace period on this pod. So you're good. Okay, good. Thank you. Well, what's your coffee of choice? You know what? I've like, obviously I'm Australian, right? We don't, um, but I've been living here in the States for a long time. I've finally worked out how to make drip coffee so that it's so unbelievably strong. Yeah. Okay. What's your secret? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but like <laughs> not a lot of water and all of the <laughs> But it ends up being like mud. It didn't Australia originate the flat white? Yes. And yeah, you can't, yeah. no one does a proper flat white here. Like no. sometimes I'll be like, I'll have a flat white. And then when the barista puts it on the counter, they're like, cappuccino? I'm like, I don't know about cappuccino. This no is not going to make air, by the way, because I sound like an asshole. But um, <laughs> I think we should keep oh, Yeah. Yeah. So we watched the movie Blue Crush and reviewed it on this podcast, and we need to know your opinion on it. I think our consensus was that it actually held up pretty well, had a a generally positive message, but what are your thoughts on like the accuracy or just generally like did you enjoy it? So people loved Blue Crush, and the thing that was actually awesome about Blue Crush is it made women surfing cool, and I'll kind of age myself but like you know when I was growing up surfing there weren't many women or many girls that surfed and you know for a blue crush to come along and it was this like awesome story about you know young women like taming pipeline surfing and women surfing in particular became cool so it was awesome for us the one of the best things about that movie is that there are a lot of the pro women in it either playing themselves or playing extras or as stunt doubles So you watch it and you see like all of these cameo appearances from the pros at the time. I mean, we all loved it. That movie for us was awesome. And I also loved that more than anything, it really picked up the the kind of like heart of the pursuit, you know, like you have these young women that are just like, this is all I'm going to do. And and all of us kind of felt the same way when we were growing up surfing because we were just so so in love with it as a sport. You know, people kind of joke about being bitten by the surfing bug. And it is really true because once you 
kind of get that feeling. It's like all you want to do when you're young. So, so for me, when I was growing up and, you know, watching Blue Crush, like, I mean, in some ways everyone kind of felt seen because we were like, oh yeah, this is totally, this is totally all of us. So we wish we could do this. You know what I mean? Like I'd never been to Pipeline at the time, but yeah, we all loved it. In it, there's the Rocky montage of training, which I think is the obligatory water sport training scene, which is somebody holds a big rock and runs underwater. <laughs> Nobody does that, right, Jesse? Like, did you ever train by holding a big rock and running underwater? Look, I didn't because I grew up in Sydney, but people do do it. What? Yeah, people genuinely do do it. And, you know, it's hard when you're underwater not to flow to the top. So people will, will hold something. You see it a lot now, more so honestly, in pools, and there's a lot of weight training that's done underwater too. But um, you know, I never did it, but mainly because you know where I grew up in Bondi, just not a lot of big rocks <laughs> hanging around. And if a shark comes, you can bop them on the nose with your big bop rock. Them. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's, it's multi-purpose. <laughs> <laughs> the docu series that's be is it is it being made right now? I wanted to kind of start with talking about that because it feels like this is the next big thing with sports is being able to tell stories in this way. Can you kind of take us through the origin of it, how y'all decided who was being featured, if you had a role in that, and like how you think surfing can be captured in that medium? Oh, uh, yeah, so season two's out now. So it's on Apple TV+. Plus. The world's best surfers in the world's best ways. So we have a... Uh like a really good relationship with box to box and they had come to our CEO, Eric Logan, who used to run Oprah's networks. And they kind of had the idea, you know, amongst themselves. Um, they actually came with us through COVID through the tour. And like, you know, when we went to Australia and we had to quarantine and everything like that, we had this crew with us, which is kind of where it became a bit of like the traveling family circus. But it's really interesting to watch and it's interesting for us because, you know, when you have such access to the surfers and and surfing, I feel like, is one of those kind of sports where people kind of half know about it, but like maybe don't, or they'll, they'll see these amazing images, but they don't always know exactly who our athletes are. Here in America, we've got Carissa Moore, who is the Olympic gold medalist in Tokyo. The gold medal will go to USA and Carissa Moore. And so we are starting to have all of these amazing platforms for athletes, for people to really know who they are and to see, you know, how hard they train and things like that. Because I think that, you know, for a while there, people didn't really understand how serious people take surfing. You know, I think that it comes across sometimes as this like cruisy, like lifestyle, whereas in reality, it's like, these are some of the most competitive people I've ever met in my whole life. And it's cool for us to have something like that to show that. What is it like filming that in terms of, are you more cognizant of not wanting to wipe out or look a certain way? Like, does it make you more nervous and more competitive? It's been pretty funny. So like for us, they've been there a lot. And um, I'm a bit like, we make decisions and we do things and, you know, we do everything that we can. And I'm I'm happy for people to be there and, and hang out with us. It actually kind of felt a little bit more like we just had friends at the end of it. crew's <laughs> 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 definitely been with us for a lot of pretty big moments on the tour. And and I kept saying, you know, there were a couple of times where I was saying to them, I was like, I swear it's not always like this. Like, I swear it's, we don't always have these like huge moments and huge dramas. You know, one of the first episodes that they ever filmed with us was in Maui. We were there with the Women's Championship Tour and we had 
a fatal shark attack on a member of the public at the event site. And that was the first trip that they had done. And they were just like, um, okay, this is not what we expected. <laughs> but um, I think it really says a lot about the team when you have someone following you through, you know, moments like that and it doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't feel like too much. You know what I mean? They're, they're a really good crew. We've loved them. Coming from like the sports backgrounds that we come from, like for me, primarily basketball, you could try to do something like that, but you're going to hit a lot of hurdles with athletes who are just overly miked and exposed and they don't necessarily, like in the NBA, right? Like they're not trying to grow it in the way that surfing is right now. And so do you have to convince them at times when they're in their zone, focused on what they have to do? They're like, you got to let the crew in or like, we got to mic you up or like, where are you on that like continuum of getting your athletes to buy into the storytelling versus the competition? I think for us, like, it's a choice, you know, if you want to be, if you'd want to be in the show, if you want to be in a different episode, you know, it's totally up to the surfer. And um, I think the thing that's really cool with the group of athletes that we have is that they're there and they realize the opportunity that it is for them and also for the sport to be there and to, you know, have um, have that kind of exposure and and people caring about what we do. I think everyone really sees that and um, because we all care deeply about the tour. You know, we love the sport and we care deeply about it. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I'm, there's a lot of times and we're always there and I'm like, yeah, people should know how cool this is, you know. People should know how hard everyone works. And um, I do think too, like, the team that we've had filming are so amazing and there never has felt for surfers that they're too close or too far up in their face, if that makes sense. I think that the art I've seen is to be able to film and to cover but not to, not to be, you know, really obviously present and and it is a real testament to everyone that's been filming that they can be there and not be in the way as such if that makes sense i have a really stupid question well i have a lot of really stupid questions but you mentioned a shark attack <laughs> and kate and i on the side chat were like hmm not something that we generally think about when we're playing other sports how much are you afraid of sharks if at all <laughs> You know, I think the thing about surfing is, which is part of the allure, is that you're there in the ocean and you have this amazing, it does sound really like hippy-dippy in some ways, but you, it, it is this, uh, like, everyone has this amazing connection with nature. I never really think about sharks. People love the ocean and we love it so much. Like, you wouldn't take risks and, you know, like, go surfing in particular spots or if there's, like, you know, big bait balls of fish and things like that, but... um there is something that, that you can't ever really replace when you have that kind of a playing field in the ocean. The ocean's unpredictable. Like, even for us, for competitions, we're totally reliant on, you know, swell and weather conditions and the wind and, you know, hoping that we get these amazing wave conditions for us when we're, we're at all of these places. And, and sometimes, you know, we don't get incredible surf. And other times you, you do, and it all work, kind of works out. And there is something kind of magical about it because you are there in the elements and you know it's the most unpredictable playing field probably in all the sports that's a big I'm, I'm here making the big claims and there's the one sport played on mars and other than that y'all are it yeah yeah exactly no. right it's like well this other thing and but you know when you start thinking about surfing like that and and that as a as a sport and the playing field that we have and how it's this 
total ecosystem of its own, it is something that's really special. And it's part of why everyone became surfers in the first place. You know, that kind of search for, you know, perfect waves or, and it then comes into, you know, searching for perfect waves in competition and trying to get a perfect score and things like that. It's it's this kind of pursuit in some ways, which is also this hugely competitive sport. And we're in the Olympics and the World Championship Tour at WSL, like, you know, we go all over the world. And, you know, we have our WSL finals here in California. You know, we have all these amazing events and it's all mixed into this environment that we love. And, um, you know, we kind of grew up just in, in some ways. It's kind of funny that we, our most recent person we interviewed was a golfer and she also brought up the elements as a factor and coming from basketball, you know, there was like almost... It, it wasn't envy, but it was like, you shoot a free throw. It's like, it's always the same temperature. There's never wind. Like, there's never those. So maybe there is a comparison to be made between golf and surfing in terms of dealing with the environment. Although you definitely reign supreme on the most volatile playing field that exists. Another stupid question, but I like have to ask it. Is the pain of water falling on you directly proportional to the size of the wave or does something happen underneath that like lessens it? Like getting crushed by a 10 foot wave, the exact double is 20 foot and then 10 times 100 foot or do weird things happen? To be honest, weird things do happen a little bit. The way that, you know, waves are the other thing that is, you know, so kind of part of the pursuit of surfing is that every wave is different. So you know, you have some waves that'll hit a reef in a different way and they'll break in a particular kind of like angle. But when we're looking at, you know, just waves in general, like when the bottom of whatever you're looking at, I was about to be like the bottom of the wave, it's not quite the bottom of the wave, but like depending on whether the wave's breaking on on sand or rock or coral, you know, is also taken into account because in those kinds of situations, like if it's coral, you don't really want to hit the coral. Whereas if it's sand, you may want to you know, hold on to sand. There's all this other stuff, but um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. Like, I feel like we've been trying to master the ocean for, you know, hundreds of years and we've never quite managed it, but you know, there's a lot of work that gets done in the space of like breath hold and, you know, and and actually just relaxing when you're underwater is really important because as soon as you kind of have that moment of panicking or, you know, of that stress, you you let your oxygen out and then you kind of need to keep it for a little bit and and just relax and wait for the wave to pass, if that makes sense. It sounds terrifying. Yeah. It sounds so, so much scarier the more I learn about it. Yeah, the only waves I've dealt with are like on very soft sand. And those are the ones I like to deal with, usually in the five foot variety. Okay, so back to the, when you're talking about like the consumer or the casual sports fan, and I don't know how y'all talk about it internally, of like getting them past the friction of like knowing how to watch surfing. Yeah. Cause like for me, that might be the friction. And it, it took me years when it came to soccer. Like I understood the objective, but I never knew what a foul was. I just didn't understand a lot of the stuff they were trying to do. When you talk about that within surfing, when it's like to get a casual sports fan to tune in, what do they have to understand about the scoring system and what it is to like get a perfect score? And it's a really good question because it changes as well, depending on where we are which is kind of where for the casual fan, when you're tuning in somewhere like Pipeline in Hawaii, you know, when you have these waves that are big barrels and you can, it's quite obvious what you're watching, you know, like you're going to see one of the, our men or women, they'll take off, they'll pick a wave, Pumping into the tube. you know, Could they'll get barreled and then they come out in this great explosion. Somehow comes out of nowhere. Places like that, I think, 
kind of speak for themselves in some ways. And then, you know, the kind of nuances around performance surfing in smaller waves in terms of like different maneuvers and things like that. Clean roundhouse cutback. More with some momentum, a serious layback hack. That can be a bit tricky. I think that airs the other one that kind of really stand out for people. And for us, like, you know, when you're looking at casual fans and they're watching you know, some of our Brazilian men do these, you know, amazing, crazy big aerials. Like we have people like Gabriel Medina who are doing backflips on waves, things like that. You know, as the sport continues to progress, waves that allow for maneuvers like that. And then when you have the big barrels and things like that as well, like they're the kind of ones where it's easier to understand. Mm. But, um, you know, when you're looking at, you know, nuances of some of the turn maneuvers and tricks that people are doing. Nice off the bottom there. Good slash, wraps it back around. Another good slash, kind of breaks those fins, those little fin drift there for. You know, for sure, it gets a bit trickier. You know, we try and explain the judging criteria every day on our broadcast. And that judging criteria, speed, power, and flow. The other thing for us too is that we're so conditions dependent, depending on different days, the judging will change because the conditions have changed. You know, maybe the wind is different or maybe the size of the waves are different. So the one thing in our favour is that there's a lot of kind of comparison in judging. So if you watch for a period of time in one day and then you start watching the comparisons between different waves in different heats and things like that, um, it'll start to make sense. But things like backflips and crazy big pipeline, things like that, they're the really stunning spectacles that we have as a sport and they're the kind of like the the big wow moments, you know. For a casual fan, you turn on the TV and you can see Pipeline because that wave as well is kind of a, such a part of pop culture in general. Those are the ones that are easy for us to understand. The last time Kate and I talked about surfing on this show was after we watched 100-foot wave. This is where the biggest wave in the world is. And I actually went to Nazare for uh, a little like pit stop on a vacation that I took. I know that like the 100 foot wave spectacle, it was portrayed as being like somewhat controversial in the surfing world. Have you seen that documentary? Do you have any thoughts about how like insane the pursuit of the 100 foot wave is? You know, it's a really interesting one because um, the 100 foot wave is the pursuit of that is crazy you know, in some ways. But at the same time, I'm like, it's also amazing. Um, Garrett McNamara actually works with us at World Surf League because we also run a contest in Nazare that's a towing contest. I went a few years ago and, um, you know, sitting there with Garrett and, and hearing him talk about the wave and, you know, the pursuit of that, you know, 100 foot, the magical kind of barrier in some ways, it's incredible and, like, you know, it's not for me. <laughs> it's never something that's called that's me. That's what I say too. Yeah, it's same. It's definitely not for me. <laughs> no, I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is for me, but like hearing him talk about it and, you know, Justine DuPont, she previously was on the championship tour at the WSL. And so she's come from this hyper-competitive shortboarding world and, and then has started looking into big waves and she still competes in shortboard, but you know, she's become this pioneer of big wave surfing for women. And and I watch them and the passion that they have for it. It's really interesting because, you know, you, t- you speak to them in person and you can feel the drive that they have in terms of wanting to ride this wave. And for, you know, you and I, we might look at the wave and be like, yeah, no, thanks. Like, <laughs> and it's a real passion for them. And I mean, it's pretty cool. Like, again, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around because when I think about a hundred foot wall of white water, you know, falling on my head, then I'm like, I don't know about if I really want that, but it would be 
it's a pretty awesome thing to watch. And, you know, more than anything, you know, in my role, I, I really enjoy seeing people, you know, kind of chase like their dreams and being able to support where we can. And being able to work with Garrett on our own events is like a real privilege for us too. Like I'm really grateful to have him as part of the team when we run. Well, go enjoy your drip coffee. Just oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Nice to meet you. We're getting ready to rush. Like, look at all the people already starting to line up. The University of Alabama is the top sorority recruitment in all of the country. Rush consists of four highly competitive rounds. We have to do a quick little, uh, I, I mean, I guess it's not a does it hold up, Kate, but maybe mm. a little debate topic about a documentary you watched, which claimed that yeah. it was about a sport and the sport yes. was rushing. And if you don't know what that is, it is when you attempt to join a sorority at a big time university or school and you like mm-hmm. dress up and do interviews and stuff. And it is extremely competitive, but it was declared in the documentary Bama Rush, which is on Max, formerly HBO Max, that this is a sport. Rushing a sorority is sports. I, I'm not sure about that, but I want to know what you thought about it and what you thought about the documentary. I think we can straddle an answer there to that like you and I respectfully can call it a competition oh it's definitely competitive there's no doubt so I'm not going to go so far as to call it a sport we'll call it a competition but I think there's a lot of things we might talk about on off the looking glass which might fall under the category of competition yes like cheese wheel racing kind of a competition kind of a sport not sure also don't want to offend anybody who's uh rushing sororities by comparing it to cheese wheel racing not sure if that's a positive or a negative But I think I would have watched this doc no matter what, because I don't know anything about sororities. Mm -hmm. But you definitely texted and you were like, you have got to watch this madness. And within the first 20 minutes of watching Bama Rush, I was responding back to you that like, I was terrified of the first half of the movie, especially was terrifying because it is an insight into a world and a way of behaving that coming from a background of playing basketball and college basketball and like growing up as like the sporty version, I just didn't have any insight into the performance mm-hmm. that is rush, rushing. Rushing. So that was the first half. Cause it's like, well, we can get the movie goes a lot of different me, places. Uh, it does. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how strange the documentary is, I think, but you're making me think of the meme from, I think you should leave where Tim Robinson's in the car. And he's like, I don't know what any of this shit is. And I'm fucking scared. Oh, that's how I pictured you watching the entire documentary as someone who has never been in a sorority or been, it seems, it sounds like near uh, adjacent to a sorority. Uh, no, even at the university of Colorado, I never, I don't know if there was Greek life. There must've been <laughs> never went inside any of them. The closest I got was my sister went to Dartmouth and when I was a senior in high school, I'd go visit her and we went to some frat parties there. Mm. And that was terrifying in its own right. Yeah, I mean, they it, have their own in like, all of weird the ways. selection process. So I was never in a sorority because first off, I graduated from Notre Dame. They did not have Greek life. But my freshman year, I was at Clemson. I didn't know anything about Greek life. When I arrived at Clemson, I had like 
two hours to decide if I wanted to rush or not. And I, I didn't even know what that word meant. But then I found out that soccer tryouts were the same week as rush week. So I played soccer instead and I made a lot of good friends that way. So do not have any regrets. But the entire concept was foreign to me. So I maybe have like a tiny bit more of like a background knowledge than you, but I also, to yeah. me, it was like a foreign language. And maybe we back up for a second and just share some of the broad picture about Bama Rush because it's maybe it goes without saying, but it's set at the University of Alabama, which you learn in the film is, I guess we could say like in the same way that their football team is often the king of football, University of Alabama is like the place to join a sorority. If you want to be in the most preeminent sororities in the country, uh, yeah. it's like, or if you want to just partake in the competition that is Rush. They're like the Alabama football of sororities is what yeah. you're saying. Or they're the Yukon women's basketball <laughs> of sororities. I don't know which one works better. And then more context is that it seems during the pandemic on TikTok, the hashtag of Bama Rush trended and mm -hmm. there would be people from all over the country, I dare say all over the world, following the videos of the young women who were rushing right, Bama sororities. Right, and right. this became like kind of a reality show that you could follow on TikTok. Exactly, because they like rank the tiers of sororities that you can end up in. I'm curious what you thought about the actual like meat of the documentary because the premise itself, if you're not super familiar with sororities or rushing or Alabama is kind of strange and terrifying, but the actual people that were in the documentary and some of the problems and anxieties that they have, the racism of the sorority system, it didn't get integrated until 2013, which was when I was in college, so it was not that long ago. And the amount of money that it costs to be in a sorority, all of these things were shocking and eye-opening and like very sad, I thought. But what did you think? Yeah. So the meat of the doc, right? there were some things that they were interesting to me. Just the when they go back historically to when women were first, colleges were first becoming co-ed, you could make sense of what a sorority was. Like mm -hmm. women wanted to group together to be able to have power in numbers and not feel isolated across campus. And then they share like the detail of that rushing initially was actually the inverse, that the sororities would rush to probably the train stations at that time, maybe the bus <laughs> depot. And be able to like pitch themselves to the women who were coming on campus for the first time. So Rush was kind of the other way around. The sororities were rushing out to meet the incoming freshmen or the incoming students. So there were details like that that were interesting to me. And then the overall concept that sororities were reinforcing and selecting the power structure in the U.S. Like wealthy people had access faster they were consolidating power in these groups because they could share their networks like all of that was in the beginning of the doc felt like the promise that we would dive into those things that we would dive into the secret machinations of of sororities and, mm -hmm. and greek life to really show how that power structure translates to the power structure in the u.s like all of these things in the beginning as well as just like the performative nature of the femininity of yeah. it were fascinating to me. I would say that both you and I, as we were texting about it, we felt let down by the follow through on a lot of those things. And we can kind of get into that now, like director Rachel Fleet and some of the decisions she made in this doc, like you and I were kind of bouncing those ideas back and forth. Yeah, the performance of femininity is a interesting 
part of it because there are people, adult people, who train and coach these 17 and 18 year old women and girls into the proper way to present themselves to the sororities to make it into a top tier sorority. And those things include shopping for dresses, getting your hair done. It is like a, a Anne Hathaway movie montage scene uh, or, or she's the man, I guess is a better comparison. But as you said, it seemed like the director didn't get the goods maybe. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, yep. it just, it, she made some baffling choices. She included herself in the documentary as a talking head, as a metaphor for being one of these girls, which I thought was really strange because she wasn't a person who rushed at Alabama and she used her own experience having alopecia as like this metaphor. And it it just felt really strange to me for a number of reasons. And then at the end of the documentary, the documentary kind of just became about the documentary. And as all of these subjects kind of dropped out of participation for various reasons, they didn't really have any sort of conclusion to what the setup was. There was a part of me that felt deeply for the predicament that Rachel Fleet, the director, seemed to find herself in in the middle of making this doc because at least the way she presents it in Bama Rush, on the outset, it sounds like a lot of these sororities and some of these young women who are rushing agree to participate in the doc And yet then as it progresses and it seems as if the sororities and some of these young women start to come of the belief that the doc is going to be sort of an expose on them. Yeah. And the quote unquote end of Greek life as we know it and Alabama, all of a sudden her access just dries up. Every single one of the young women she's following either pulls their access or decides not to rush. She never really had access inside the world of rushing. And so when this doc finishes, as somebody who watched it to understand sorority life at the peak of sorority life, which seems to be happening at the University of Alabama, I could list all the things I didn't know more than I could list the things (laughs) I didn't know. What I didn't know was like how the rush process actually worked. Right. Like there's this cryptic like they all sit in a stadium and they get an envelope. But like I needed some graphics because it's confusing. Right. You have to match a rushies number one choice with a house's number it one. It sounds like-, like when you're like graduating med school and you have to pick where your residency is and you pick like a top five or if you're in the military and you pick like where mm-hmm. you want to be stationed and they're like, well, Maybe we'll give you one of yeah. these or maybe we'll give you a random one. I, don't, I again, I don't know either. I'm with you. I was left with so many questions. But I think the biggest question, which you didn't even really need firsthand access to, would be the question of like what you already said, which is like, how does this then translate once these people graduate? Like, where do we see this power dynamic playing out in yeah. like society? Who in politics is part of these groups, like who that shapes our policy and our legislation is part of these groups. Like, is there any sort of implication that the way that this is set up from the age of 17 to 18 up until adulthood, when you can actually influence people and like make important decisions, how does that impact the way that the world works? I don't know. There were a lot of like broad questions that I think could have been answered that just were, were not. Yeah. I think the one little anecdote in the doc that I think kind of represented the whole to me was when one of the consultants was talking with a potential rushy about how to make conversation and what topics to avoid. 
And she was like, so always avoid topics of any political nature, anything having to do with money, anything having to do with the power that potential parent figures might hold. And it was this way of saying that, like, basically don't talk about anything that revolves around the power that everyone holds. So it's like this unspoken, like, don't talk to them about all of the things that actually reinforce the power that you are trying to access. And so it's like this silent transference of, silent in terms of like, you're not allowed to speak out loud, even though it's all inferred by everybody about the reasons and the ways in which a lot of these people who make these sororities hold power and transfer it. Yeah, I'm wondering what topics are left, like the weather? Yeah, for sure. Again, I have a lot of friends that were in sororities, and it seems like a thing that wouldn't have been for me. I get that people do it because they want to make friends or they want to be involved in like a group on campus. Like there's a lot of reasons I think people want to do it that aren't bad. So like I'm not saying you're a bad person if you are part of one. But the construct of it, when you look at its history, especially recent modern history, does have a lot of problems. I mean, honestly, I wish I, I, I can't have judgment for sororities after watching Bama Rush because I don't know enough about them still. <laughs> like, I don't even know what you have to do to get into them besides have a lot speak of money. About, I'm pretty yeah. sure it costs at a big school tens of thousands of dollars just on your wardrobe and like I, your- ju- I mean that's not even including there's dues you have to pay and then they did talk a little bit about the standards and the rules which are I mean just like you're not allowed to have alcohol or drink but also social life revolves around mixers and tailgates and again bizarre yeah we didn't have it up Notre Dame and I'm really glad <laughs> But if you want to follow us on IG at Off the Looking Glass Pod, OTLG Pod, and you were in a sorority, and there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of benefits, feel free to stop by in the IG comments because just neither of us were in a sorority. All we have to go on. We want to live vicariously through our listeners' sorority experiences. And if you have a bad experience, drop us a line too. We'd love to hear all of the experiences, good and bad. So, Kate, I think we can sum up this episode pretty easily. Mm. Surfing is definitely a sport. Yes. We don't think rushing is, but we are terrified of both. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This is, I guess this was an episode on things we're terrified of. <laughs> the things we don't understand that scare us. Yeah. I-, I like that theme. That's a good theme. What would you do first? Go surfing in an ocean that's... Because I, I have to phrase this, like, I don't want you to go surfing in, like, Malibu. Actually, I don't even know what the waves are like in Malibu. I'm not going to Nazare. Again. No, you're not going to 80-foot yeah. waves. Oh my but God, what would you no. rather do? Spend a day rushing a sorority or a day surfing? I think I could surf, like, a tiny wave. I think I do enough reformer Pilates classes that I could do a tiny wave and I have the core strength just to stand up for, like, a split second. Yeah. But I'm not going in deep water and I'm certainly not going to try to surf a wave larger than like six inches yeah six inches it's a very small wave but (laughs) I think some would say it's large (laughs) it's all about perspective really Um, I think I would rather spend the day surfing but I think I'd be better at rushing actually okay I mean performed femininity aside I don't think I'd find it hard to have carry on conversations No, but you would end up interviewing the interviewees because you are a reporter who is by nature very curious. So you would you would flip it back on them, I think. 
Yeah, and I think that they would leave being like, wow, that person thought I was really interesting and I got to talk about myself a lot and people love that. And so they would leave being like, if she lived in our house, maybe I'd get to talk about myself a lot. So let's get her in the house. That's why I think I'd be successful at rushing. Nice. That's a good strategy. What do you think? I mean, I feel like this is like one, this is a theme in our episodes where I I choose bull racing, bull, uh, the, the ra- r- rushing of the bulls. What is that called? Oh my God. The, the rushing, running of the bulls? The running of the bulls over cheese Ooh, the wheel. rushing of the bulls is a good <laughs> crossover event though. I'm intrigued by whatever that is. Yeah, I'm going to stop talking and we should just jump right into credits at this point. Yes. I think the rushing of the bulls is just joining a sorority at South Florida. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Let's tell people who helps make this show, starting with you, Jess, co-host and producer, and as well as Anya Alvarez, who produces Off the Looking Glass, and Carl Scott, who executive produces it. Thanks to you, Kate, for co-producing and co-hosting the show, and to Joel Shupak for doing all of the sound audio, engineering, designing, mixing, all the things that make the show sound good and make it unique. And thanks also again to Jesse Miley Dyer for joining us and talking about the World Surf League. We'll be back next week with more sports and competitions. competitions.